Spread the fire. Welcome back to SMWX. And today we continue our series on race in the media. And I cannot wait to introduce our guest. Yes, I've done the impossible. I've brought him out into the public eye. Uh, radio listeners, don't beg for a new show and all of that. I know you've been begging on Twitter. Um, but before I introduce um, our guest, just a reminder that this is a an initiative in collaboration with the South African Media Innovation Program, which is a multi-year initiative that seeks to accelerate digital media innovation among independent media outlets. And with their help, we are having a conversation about race in the media. And to do that, I am joined by the one and only broadcaster extraordinaire, thinker, author, and all-round nice person. Uh, Mr. Eusebius Makaiser, thanks so much for joining us on SMWX. It's only a pleasure, Dr. Mpofu. <laughs> Starting to get used to it finally. And thank you for your support. By the way, I haven't publicly affirmed your absolutely brilliant achievement. Um, I know how hard you worked um, at getting that default done from Oxford. Really, really proud of you. And I'm also delighted that while you're doing postdoctoral work, that you are continuing to do work in the media as well. Really appreciate it. And thank you for all your support in both fields and for joining us in SMWX again. You're one of the most popular interviews we've had. So we've got you back. Um, and, you know, this, this is a topic that we've spoken about on a personal level, you know, across our, our various um, lunches, which have unfortunately been thwarted by COVID this year. But um, I'm really glad to be able to have this conversation with you. And, and I wanted to kick off by just asking you about your own experiences, because, of course, this is a, a countrywide problem. This is a social problem. But it's felt through practice as someone in the media, as a consumer, but also as, as one of our country's uh, now legendary broadcasters. Um, what are some of the experiences that you've had that have caused you to see the salience and the importance of race? in the South African media? Mm, it's a really, really important question. Um, and I've reflected on it because your platform is so important and the issue is so important that I didn't want to just shoot from the hip. Mm. I think firstly, the one thing that struck me early on is the narrative framing that you also spoke about in the first installment of the series mm. that our media renders people of color, black people, brown people, invisible. And that even where newsrooms have a numerical majority of staff that are black, it doesn't necessarily mean that the legacy of white supremacy within the South African media, like the rest of society, have been eliminated. So the one thing that has always struck me is how if you produce journalism or propose to produce journalism, that is pro-poor, that is pro-social justice, that is critical of various forms of hegemony that you are immediately marked out as some sort of maverick, which is weird because in a country like ours, you would think that having a even explicit bias in favor of telling the stories of black people, of working class people, people living under conditions of poverty, that you have an obvious basic duty as a journalist to do so because that's the experience that is default for the vast majority of citizens. Mm. I think my first sort of systemic encounter with the ways in which 
racism as well as class hegemony plays out within the South African newsroom is how you come up against and you get marked out as being something of a maverick, mm. controversial, controversial, eusebious, and all you're really doing is asking tough questions about neoliberal economics, about consensus around orthodox economics, around whether or not, you know, the state is truly the only actor responsible for corruption. What about non-state actors? You ask those questions and suddenly you come up against forces that don't like it. Mm, mm. That's that's a really interesting insight and, and one that I, you know, I, I hadn't thought about, but you know, when you go into, for example, broadcasting a show, um, which was as popular as yours, for example, there are a whole lot of, and people don't see this, decisions that you have to make about how you want to situate things. And I can imagine that you you went through many a sleepless night thinking about how you wanted to frame things in order that on the one hand, you were critical of power, but you didn't fall victim to stereotyping black people while you were doing that. Um, what were the kind of decisions that you had to go through as someone who, in my view, is one of the rare people who has trod that balance between anti-racism and anti-corruption at the same time? I mean, you're a brilliant intellect. And when I am in conversation with you, I, I have to raise my game. But I, I want to intersect the theoretical first answer I've given you with maybe some practical mm. examples also mm, easier mm. to digest for the viewers of this excellent platform. Let's take 702 and be plain yeah. about it. The 702 that existed when John Robbie was a breakfast host, when Jenny was still there in the afternoon, mm. my friend Reed was there mid-morning, um, that was a 702 where you couldn't do the kind of left-wing critical journalism and broadcasting mm. take on the country that you do and that I do because it's our sincere convictions um, politically. Mm. So the first thing I had to think about was if I wake up tomorrow and I do an open line on can black people be racist? Mm. Or is there such a thing as white privilege? How will I respond to the fact that hundreds of people who listen will be irate because they're not used to waking up on 702 to a deep challenge of their conviction that they are decent, their conviction that they do not have any biases and that everyone has some form of privilege or that white privilege is just a concept made up by the left across the world. Mm. And I had to take a decision to say to myself, you know what, I don't care about being fired. I don't chase ratings. I want to frame conversations that are not awkward for their own sake, but that I think will move the needle in a way that mm. moves it towards a dialectic around issues where we are pussyfooting around complexities instead of actually bringing them to the surface. And a good example would be around white privilege. The 702 audience, and, I, and maybe I'll use this analogy, when you go onto 702 or any radio station, it's like mm. going into someone's house and almost quite literally, because many people will listen to you doing your radio show while they're inside their house or inside their car. So their connection with you is deeply personal. Now, if I come into that space and I've just been hired with my left-wing racial politics, mm. and I tell 
the average 702 person to examine their views about themselves, that maybe not everything is okay. Maybe you're not as decent as you think you are. Maybe just because you're not an explicit racist doesn't mean you don't have implicit racism in you. It's the equivalent in terms of how they experience me of me knocking on their front door and saying, Pete, let me in. I want to tell you about your white supremacy. And so it's deeply personal. Mm. And I just took the decision that I don't give a damn about whether I have a 20-year career or whether I have a two-year career on 702 or a five-year career. I want to be remembered for centering conversations dialectically that try and dig so that we can get at the truth about the history of colonialism and racism in our country, what it has done to all of us, black and white people, how it manifests in the present, and to both educate and to challenge and to debate and frame debates and do so um, because I think that is what a good broadcaster should do. Mm. And what helps if I can distill all of that muddled responses is that at the heart of that decision was a refusal um, to be obsessed with popularity. So people mm. say, mm. you know what you see, I didn't always like you, but you were appointment listening. I prefer that to someone liking me uncritically. Mm. Um, I never aspired to be a Simonier presenter or to be a top billing presenter who is gorgeous with a six pack, no one hates you. But quite frankly, what, what are you leaving behind the morning after you're dead? What will people you remember you for? And mm. for me, it was important to say truth and dialectic is far more important than popularity. And I'd far rather someone respect me than like me, or even worse, they are unmoved by my journalism. And that's quite a, a hard thing for, let's say, a young black journalism, just a journalist starting in the industry to internalize and realize is that not only are you likely going to have to fight um, to, to break important stories and to make enemies of very powerful people, but you might also have to fight a dual battle within your newsroom um, and become unpopular inside. And that places quite a, quite a psychological burden on a young black journalist who wants to do um, brave, unapologetic work on both fronts of, of journalism, but also combating racism as they see it within the media landscape. That's true. And it's not just restricted to broadcasting. I started mm. my media career in South Africa in the print media space quite accidentally. Someone that I should really have thanked privately before I do it publicly, but I'll do it publicly now, is Peter Bruce, who had enormous respect for me as a lighty. I was hardly back from England, arrived, inexperienced, and he saw something in me. He allowed me to be hired into business day literally to come and debate with them on a daily basis what the editorial should be for the next day. I wrote mm. a lot of their editorials in my 20s. Mm. And um, he then also gave me my first column. We get along very well now, but for many years we didn't talk to each other. And the reason we didn't talk to each other is that Peter got pissed off at a column that I wrote in which I analogized from apartheid South Africa to the experience of the Palestinian people in the Middle East. Now, I'm not an expert on international relations like you are. I don't like talking about the Middle East because I don't have sufficient deep knowledge around it. But as a moral philosophy student, analogies and moral criticism interest me. So I mm. sliced off that 
particular week's column. Just a very simple, although controversial, question around the analogy with the apartheid state and experience. Mm. And Peter called me up and didn't want to run the column and told me, um, pardon my French, but this, you know, the series is not governed by the Broadcasting Complaints Commission or something. <laughs> it's my newspaper and I can do whatever the fuck I want to. And I said to him, Peter, you can, and I can in turn tell you to go fuck yourself. And that's hmm. how my relationship with Business Day ended. So that's another example of where it was inconvenient for a young black person mm. to write a sharp column that would piss off the folks that put advertising behind Business Day and mm. the readership. And I was mm. particularly disappointed with Peter Bruce at the time because Peter is a very principled person. I know that he didn't want to not publish my column because he hated my viewpoint. I think Peter on that particular day just had a bad day at the office in the sense that he was too lazy to want to deal with the kind of backlash that he will get from his readership. Mm. And I think my debate training and my training as a law and philosophy student that makes me a little bit argumentative helps. So I'm not scared of losing income. I'm not scared of poverty. I grew up poor. And because of that, I don't mind overthinking the consequences of digging in my heels. Mm. I think I'm a bit more mellow now than I was 10 years ago. I might not say the same thing in a similar situation now than I did mm. at the beginning of my career. But the way I navigated that as a black person is to say to myself, if I had the freedom as a columnist to sustain this argument that happens to be perceived, rightly or wrongly, as a left-wing argument where you have affinity between this columnist and the experiences of Palestine, mm. um, why on earth should I buckle when an editor finds it inconvenient? He hired me to write it as I see it. But I completely, completely, completely accept that for black women in particular and black people in general and women in general can be enormously, enormously hard, especially uh, in our newsrooms to be your authentic self when you come up against that kind of male power, capital, capitalism, mm. and white male hegemony in particular. Absolutely. You know, okay, there are two things that, that come from that, that that take us in a very interesting direction. The first one actually goes to, to something I read on your Facebook wall. Um, and you've just jogged my memory because you, you were in an Uber and, and someone said that they, you know, oh, you, you see this Makaiser. When I first heard you, I thought you were white. Um, and, and actually, even though, as, as you say, and as we know, there are more and more black voices in the media, there's a difference between having black journalists and having black voices who adopt an authoritative voice on a topic and are capable of swaying opinion on a topic. And, and so representation is not just about having more black journalists, it's about having more black journalists of authority who are both themselves prepared to assume the authoritative voice and, 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 and who have a readership or an audience that, that uh, believes it. Um, and, and it's actually, when you think about it, that's still very, very rare in the South African media landscape. That's, you've, you've nailed it. 
one of the themes that you and I wanted to explore is representation. Mm. And when I thought about that, I thought there's two parts to that. The one question is, is, is diversity conducive to changing narratives that are one-dimensional? Mm. I think the answer is yes, but. Yes, but it depends on whether if you get more minorities, black people, women in the newsroom, whether you give them sufficient power to be truly included in strategic decisions and in what the final copy is that goes to print. Mm. Because mm. you can have black editors um, that we've had for many years now, the Sunday Times, Sunday World, EP Herald, black women even, Sowetan, mm. the Daily Dispatch, and some of them have done well. Um, I don't want to take pot shots at them. And some of them have done less well. And some of them are good examples of cosmetic changes where you haven't seen discursive change just because you've had a lead yeah. change at the, at, at the helm. Mm. And that speaks to your point. Some of them were just not strong in terms of leadership and personality and weren't ready for it. Um, others came up against challenges some left. I mean, you know, take someone like Songhezo, absolutely brilliant. Mm. I think you should write a full book in which he tells us what truly happened at mm. this day, but it's very mm. that, that he was too independent-minded in some way. Mm. Um, I mean, can you imagine me being an editor or deputy editor of a place like Financial Mail or, or Business Day? I mean, I wouldn't <laughs> last five minutes. I probably wouldn't even be approached. Um, if I were to be an editor of a newspaper, it would have to be a paper like the Mailing Guardian, where there's already a, a coincidence of, of, of mm. ideological beforehand. But your mm. point is absolutely spot on. And what I do want to say, um, at the risk of being controversial, which shouldn't be unlike me, <laughs> is that there's also a way in which some white people who are in control of the money condescend mm. to black readers, viewers, and listeners by making certain black appointments insincerely hoping to pull the wool over the eye of the public but secretly knowing that actually this person is weak either technically weak ideologically weak um, or they can effectively be controlled and i'm not saying that black <laughs> journalists can't think for themselves there are many mm. black journalists who are excellent including some excellent um, editors who are black but there's also let's be honest a certain mm. kind of black writer commentator that have their careers sponsored by a white liberal. There are, you know, many a black journalist who, and Anton Harbour, who proudly, when he retires one day, say, I groomed so-and-so. This person I took under my wings. And I'm always scared when white liberal media elders talk about their favorite black journalist. Mm. Mm, mm. Oh my goodness! Whew. Can can we? There are names that are in that. Can we have two hours? <laughs> How's your day looking? <laughs> because you know, one I would particular examples, but mm. I, I I feel conflicted about naming some of them. Mm. Um, mm. Partly because some of them are genuinely good journalists, but I also think we we can. Someone can be a good editor, and they can also be a safe editor. Mm, absolutely. And the reality absolutely. is that sometimes the black successes to white editors 
even when they've been good technically, have been safe. And the decision to go safe is absolutely deliberate. You know, one of the things that, that's interesting here, which I haven't considered yet, is when we think about the way race works in the media, we often think of the media institutions themselves. So what's the representation within a newspaper or within a radio station? But the composition of the audience, it seems from what you're saying, is also key here. And so if we have an economically unequal society skewed on racial lines, and some of our most important economic uh, publications are catering to an audience which itself is is unrepresentative or at least has a chronic overrepresentation uh, of white readers then the discussion about race in the media is not just about who's doing the talking but it's also about who's receiving that talking and uh, I, I mean it's also about when I think of these subscription models now that are becoming you know uh, all the rage is it much better if you just have a bunch of rich white subscribers and, and, and you serve them what they want all the time? Is that really serving the public interest or is it serving a very skewed subscriber who comes from a very specific uh, perspective interest? Yeah, I think that's a brilliant observation. And that is why I'm so thrilled that this series is a partnership and a multi-year mm. one because I was saying just yesterday to mostly private sector attendees of a conference where I did a keynote, mm. right at the end of it, people always want to know practically, now that you've scared us about the state of our democracy, what the hell can we actually do, you see this? Yeah. The shopping list of easy to do's, and there are no easy to do's for fixing our country's myriad problems, as you know as well as I do. Mm. But one of the things I often say to, to capitalists is, listen, if you've finally, appropriately, feel a bit guilty about either your collusion with the state in terms of stealing from society, or your culpable silence, not speaking out against your own, against the likes of McKinsey, or not speaking out against the state because you want tenders. Here's some mm. things you can do, even if you do it secretly. And one of the things you need to do is to give money to independent critical journalism, precisely so that platforms like this one, projects that I want to still do, Mm. platforms like new frame and ground up can produce journalism that can be read without being paid for because the alternative you know is that it becomes prohibitive to access it and it also means that you have a polity you've got public discourse that simply is not genuinely democratic mm. all the things that i in philosophy and you in politics theorized about what kind of society ideally do we want to live in. A deliberative democracy depends on a diverse group of participants in the public debate. And there's way too much journalism that is exclusionary. Most of the people who will engage you and I are either going to be professional journalists mm. um, or it's going to be part of the money classes. And although I think even, in a, even if our language frameworks are a bit complex in this conversation, there mm. is a pro poor critique of the media in our discussion. Um, of course, the, the people that we are hoping to inscribe into the conversation are not going to be accessing this platform. And that is a, mm. that is a massive problem. 
I see mm. that even with my beloved Mailing Guardian, I love the Mailing Guardian as a columnist for them and as a, one of mm. the main writers. Mm. But if you go onto the letter, letters pages, the, the editor receives letters, ironically enough, from people who probably regard themselves as incredibly progressive English speaking mm. white liberal South Africans who get mightily pissed off about things that you and I would regard as trite when mm. it comes to, a, you know, just a simple little column explaining white privilege. And I think I was like, my God, if this is what the average white, or not necessarily the average, but this is what a white English speaking, self-styled, progressive, liberal reader of mine thinks. Mm. What about the reader of the citizen or News 24? And yeah. what complicates it is that I'm only reaching a certain portion of readership, uh, which is precisely to your point. Mm. Mm. And I don't know what the solution to that is. I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Mm. Because it seems when we do media for black people, we also banalize black people. And I confess to be hypocritical. Take a channel like Moja Love, I'm addicted to it. <laughs> but it also seems that genuinely black owned media mm. sometimes also are very reductive in their depictions of black life, which is yeah. equally problematic. Yeah, you know, we, we're we in a bind and I don't think we've we've got to the point yet in South Africa where we have a significant number of independent, anti-racist and, and various forms of oppression and bigotry. Um, and I, I include here, you know, uh, politics that recognizes queer people, uh, of course, uh, politics of gender justice as well, on the one hand. Um, that that takes representation seriously as well, but on the other hand, is also excellent at journalism, at exposing corruption, at uh, in a nuanced way, um, holding a corrupt state that happens to have a number of black leaders feet to the fire. And for me, we you know we all need to think about how how do we build that because we we're just not there. We're just not there yet, and and we all know it. We all feel a sense of frustration um, about the landscape and how it depicts what we know is wrong. It's like we know the country is messed up, but we also know the way we're receiving how messed up the country is, is messed up. Yeah, in ways that's interesting, if we come back to the journalism, you mm. made a point in our WhatsApp chat the other day that resonated with me, and I think it generalizes to not just journalism, but across our society. Mm. There are certain complexities that, as a result of what you've just described, are lost. Um, I was saying on Twitter and Facebook the other day that we get rightly, some of us anyway, triggered by people who falsely compare apartheid South Africa to post-apartheid South Africa. Sure. And the analogy runs out very quickly because the differences run deep. Mm. But the consequence of us pushing back against a racist who insists that the two times of history are similar, the consequence of that is that we sometimes let this ANC government off the hook. Yeah. And yeah. there are very few journalism platforms. Or the EFF for that matter. Exactly. Where, as you put it, you know, we need to, we need to explain and push back against this false dichotomy that mm. if you are anti-racist, that you must be very generous in your depiction of the ANC-led state mm. and, 
and, and that's absolute BS. Mm. So there's a lot of complexity that is lost. And part of the problem is also the juniorization, um, quite apart from the racism history and the hegemonies that we flagged early in this conversation. If you don't have enough gravitas, either because you're an academic who came into journalism, you transposed your skill set, or just because you put in the hours, you've been a field, in the field, you've earned your time, and now you can really write excellent news analyses, reportage, and, and essays for me to read on a Sunday morning. There isn't that kind of complexity, and mm. that's, a, that's a real shame. So yeah. We also have a quality problem, quite apart from a racism problem, Caesar. We also have just a quality mm. problem. Mm. Mm. You know, to end, I just wanted to to bring in some numbers as well because it's 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 easy to speak about this in the abstract, um, but sometimes just concretizing the problem also, you know, just reveals that the obvious problem is also with us. You know, that there just aren't enough black people, aren't enough women, in in the media in South Africa in important positions. And and ironically, the MNG data desk uh, themselves looked at. Um, a sample of South African publications um, and media houses. And, you know, even with uh, MSG, which is 100% black owned, so that probably kind of like um, stacked the deck to some extent, their finding was that at board level, there were around 64% men and 36% women. And and actually that in senior management, there were 51% or around, let's, let's call it 50, they found 51% white, white people, which was just a bit more than white representation at board level. So there clearly, there clearly is still this problem that in the higher echelons of these organizations, in senior management and board level, there's a chronic overrepresentation of white people and men. And And it's just the thing we all think is actually borne out by the data. I think that, I think that's right. I, maybe I want to sort of put two thoughts on the table. Mm. Representation matters, demography matters, and I don't care, but I'm willing to have the conversation and debate separately mm. with anyone who wants to disagree on this. I really don't care with people who think that we are bean counting, bean counting descriptions of, what people who argue my position are saying are just really straw person responses to, to our position. It is obvious that you need representation because people bring different lived experiences to the table, the decision-making process, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're mm. not going to get a budget to take an economic or financial example that is genuinely more pro-women or at least cares about the gender gap unless you have people around the table when a budget is being put together that cares about the issues that affects women in terms of their bodies their gender their lived experiences in a misogynistic world so representation matters and it's really important that we keep track of the numbers in the way that you've just done sure. however i do want to say this there are many black people that i don't think are aggressive Mm. There are many women that I don't think are champions for women's, women's rights. So the numbers matters, sure. matter, but they're not the only thing that matter. Mm. One person you and I both love to bits, uh, your godparent, is someone who's enormously, enormously progressive mm. and mm. has excellent jurisprudence that did a hell of a lot 
to fight for the rights of all South Africans, just as sure. sure. And if you and I were part of the Judicial Service Commission, we would want to have more women and black people on the bench. I was so proud watching the latest hate speech case, a really important speech mm. case the other day, and seeing mm. so many black women on the bench at the Concord hearing. Absolutely. Even counsel. But what's equally important to me, even counsel, what's equally important to me is what comes out of their mouths. Now, let sure. me be clear, there are many mediocre white men for whom we lower the standard. And we lower the, standard. <laughs> the only point that I'm trying point that I'm trying to make is mm. the politics and the commitment to progressive journalism, progressive commitments to the values of the constitution and making sure that you render everyone visible in the stories you tell, mm. you self-examine your biases, you are aware of who you leave out when you critique what is wrong with our society. All of, all of those things are, are very important. And that's why if I was a member of, say, the Judicial Service Commission, I would pay equal attention to the numbers as to the values of the candidates in front of me. Mm. And I think that, mm. needs to, that needs to also be true of our newsrooms. When I worked at a management consulting firm, my biggest champion for pro-black grievances and experiences was a Dutch white director, the person I found the least helpful mm. was a black African director in the firm. So there isn't always a perfect correlation between the phenotype or the gender yeah. of a person and their deep commitment to pro-poor journalism and journalism that takes seriously the project of dismantling hegemonies. Um, so if we were building, building or, or putting together a cadet program like the kind of journalism being taught by the first person we had in the series sponsor. Mm. I, would, I would want to speak to those issues in terms of what kind of producers I'm training, how I'm training, training them, as much as paying attention to whether I'm hiring a woman and whether yeah. I'm hiring a black person. So to sum it up, I would disproportionately hire women and black people I would disproportionately, as a presenter and as a producer, look for women experts and black experts who are underrepresented even as guests. Mm. But what I would equally do is to ask questions about the content of their convictions mm. and their beliefs and their values. Mm. And I, I keep wanting to end, but but you keep saying things that I have to, that, that that are sparking thoughts. Like it's also about the accountability that that white journalists feel. You know, so, so even if they, they think they are progressive, uh, what mechanisms within a media organization are there for their blind spots to be, to be pointed out to them? You know, because I feel like, you yeah, know, it's just, and, and in, in fact, I get the feeling that some people have just said, you know what, I don't care about this thing anymore. I'm just going to do what I do, you know, and, and. Here's what they do, and you spark many thoughts in me. I, mm. When you invited me on, I actually, I was saying to my partner, I sent yeah. you a, I recorded a nine minutes uh, <laughs> voice note, and then my bloody phone died. Oh my goodness. That I wanted you to remind yeah. me um, that we should raise in this conversation, but mm. the conversation mm. is really, really rich. Yeah. We can have a part two. Um, Definitely. Remember the examples. But now that you've mentioned... I would love that. Comment, comment below and send you CVS tweets if you want part two. 
hound him until he comes on again. <laughs> Let me share again mm. examples that are uncomfortable because I've not shared them publicly. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe we can have a quick exchange on this. One mm. example is an old example that I've used publicly several times. When Eugene Terblanche died, I, on, I think it was a Sunday, it was definitely over the weekend, I had, I had a journalist call me and asking me what I think about the racial tensions that are about to flare up. Mm. I rebuked her because I said to her, on what basis, so-and-so, are you making this assertion? Mm. We don't know how the hell this is going to play out. <laughs> um, so I gave her my viewpoint. The next day, I bought the newspaper, and um, as commentators, we run to buy the newspaper to make sure that we are accurately quoted. And guess how I was quoted? I wasn't in the story. Who was in <laughs> the story? A commentator from the South African Institute of Race Relations. That's fascinating. Particularly a particularly inflammatory viewpoint about how horrible the racial tensions are mm. and Juju's responsible for having stoked, setting the environment in which the killing had happened. Mm. And he was playing, willing to play the game of crystal ball gazing about the impending race war. Mm. Now that journalist has probably forgotten about the story because it's so imbued in her to not self-examine and she mm. is you, you might even regard as progressive. I'll tell you on WhatsApp afterwards who she is. <laughs> we might have to leak our WhatsApp conversations to the audience. <laughs> yeah, now, the truth, it, it's plain what's going mm. on there, Caesar. That's absolutely Classic confirmation. Bias. That's one yeah. example. Second example, which is a more painful example, probably, and I can't mention him just yet mm. because mm. No, this no, requires but, real, yeah. real work. Yeah, a friend of yeah. mine was probably my closest friend at Oxford, my first friend at Oxford, first mm. person I met when I got there. We, we became very close. I've only had one deep friendship in journalism ended because of ideological difference. <laughs> this person, who is an editor, ran a front page story about what was that judge's name, Mabel or Marble, the mm. racist judge. Jensen. Mm. He chose to write the story or approve the story of her basically having effectively adopted a black kid mm. in week two or three of the story having gained legs. Mm. And I just publicly critiqued it and I said, what the fuck? I mean, the fact that racists may like particular black people doesn't exonerate their racism on another occasion. I mean, I can be in an interracial relationship with a Zulu guy and be completely racist towards Zulu people and black people Absolutely. in general. So what are you doing? You, you are clearly in a biased mm. manner trying to say to critics of this judge, yeah. how dare you? You can't be a racist. And not only is that what you have said, if you put it on the opinion pages, that would be one thing and fair, but you actually elevated it to a lead story. Mm. And this person is very tolerant of disagreement. I was shocked that he blocked me because he's not a blocker. And since mm. then, our, our friendship basically went belly up. But sure. The point that I'm trying to make is where is the accountability politically? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's nothing. He is a superstar in his company. Um, and he's a superstar mm. because mm. he's affirming the worldview 
of the owners. Yeah, he's affirming the worldview of his readers rather than challenging them. Well, uh, Eusebius, I'm going to leave it there with the hope of a uh, part two. Um, but you've been you've been very generous with your time. Thanks so much for just sharing your experiences, giving us insight into what it's like behind the scenes um, of being one of the country's most important voices on these on these questions, and and just sharing your your views and your thoughts with us. It's been it's been a really really fantastic conversation. Cesar, thank you to you. Uh, thanks for this series and for awkwardly getting out of me things that I haven't really spoken about before. Uh, but I think they are important and I, and I really think it is. So let's punt this conversation. And yeah, absolutely. You see, as I said earlier, yeah. this is not about popularity. It's about the dialectic. And thank you to yourself and your team for being committed to that as well. Absolutely. Well, like, share, comment and subscribe below. What what uh, a set of revelations there from Eusebius. We thank uh, Samip for making this conversation possible. Check the link, uh, the link below in the description if you want to go on their website. If you are a potential new independent media practitioner who's innovating, then maybe you could get some support. And uh, Eusebius, all the best. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming out of hiding for us just this once. We won't tell the 702 listeners. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Aye, aye.